I'll be reading Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Hear God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of, in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in the reading of God's word, let's pray together. Father, this is your word. We ask that you would humble us this morning under your mighty and gracious hand, that you might exalt us in Christ Jesus. I pray that you would fix our eyes on him, even as you teach us how we can live in him for your glory and our benefit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Unity has always been a major issue, an a important issue for the church, but, always, but also something that has been a very difficult thing to maintain. And standing on this side of history, it is often hard for us to remember or to even conceive of a unified church. But such was God's design from the very beginning. The church was an institution of God by the one true and living God, his pure and perfect will to be established in his son, Jesus Christ, the only savior for sinners, the only King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus called and sent out his apostles with the pure and singular gospel of Jesus Christ, the only gospel by which man ought to be saved. And so the church began that way, and yet even from the very beginning, the church was faced with conflicts and threats of Division, even in the time of the apostles, there were struggles within the church. Paul spoke of the, the church in Corinth, of having party, a party spirit, factions, where some people would say, well, I follow Paul. No, I follow Apollos. No, I follow Peter. I follow Jesus, some would say. Paul and Peter, the two apostles, they had conflicts over how to deal with Gentiles, whether Gentiles belonged in the church of God. Paul and Barnabas had such a strong conflict that their ministries split over the issue of the person, the, the man, John Mark, whether he should continue with them on their missionary journeys. And at the church of Philippi, we get a sense that there was conflict in this church, as he even calls that out in chapter 4. But it didn't stop with the, the conflict and division didn't stop with the, the apostles. The 
first several centuries of the church were, were unified in structure, but were faced with all sorts of conflicts over doctrine as the church tried to understand what God had revealed about himself and who he was over the person of who, who is God and who is Christ, who is the Holy Spirit. Lots of heresies fought, theologies perfected over the course of time. But for about a thousand years, the church was unified, at least structurally. But then the divisions started happening. And 1054 was the great schism that split the East and the West church. We're part of that Western church. And then, of course, the Protestant Reformation saw a split within the Western church between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestants. And you know the story from then, almost an explosion of division and denominations over seemingly every and all possible points of contention. But I think it's right for us to wonder, did all that division actually really have to happen? Even in the, if you trace back to that, the great schism of 1054, the, the, the dividing point was over one little phrase, and from the Son, which we have in our Apostles' Creed. It's talking about the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father and from the Son. That's an important theological debate. But there are some people, some scholars who wonder, if there's more to the story, if there had been more humility among these brothers wrestling through the issues at hand, would unity have been preserved? Or even the Protestant Reformation. Yes, we are very thankful for what the Lord did in that event. And we're thankful for those parties there. But And I don't want to besmirch anyone's character. We love Martin Luther and what he did, but there's things about his personality, his boldness, and his courage, and sometimes his sarcasm that makes us happy. And we wonder about the humility of the, the Roman Catholic Church. What if they had been willing to listen? What if hearts had been willing to speak rather than to be combative? What if they were willing to reconsider old ways and... Listen to this brother in Christ. Could that division have been divided or been avoided? But our hearts are divided. Our hearts are contentious. So often humility is very difficult. And we don't even have to look at the church as a whole. We can see it even in the conflicts within an individual church. Most of us here have seen significant conflict in churches. Some of us here have seen churches split as a result of conflict, and humility is usually not part of the equation, is it? It's uh, trying to be right, trying to prove your point, trying to stick to your guns and fight. And it's not even over important things sometimes. Churches split over the color of carpet or the type of Silverware in the kitchen. There's, there's a story told of a Dallas church that um, had two dividing, two opposing parties that were fighting so hard they went to civil court 
to resolve the property dispute. And the civil court said, no, 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 this is a church thing. We're not getting our hands dirty with this, and rightfully so. And so it went to the church courts. And as the church started to peel back the layers of what was the, alter, the root cause of this conflict, they discovered that the instigating event was a single fellowship meal where an elder was served a smaller portion of ham than a child that was seated next to him. And that is our hearts. We can be so petty. We can let things balloon because of what our sense of entitlement. And we don't even have to look at the church. We can look at even the most fundamental relationship that God has created, the marriage relationship. Two individuals, a man and a woman who have chosen to spend the rest of their lives together because they love each other and they want to be together. And that in marriage, God joins them together as one. And yet for us who have been married, we know that often the entirety of our, the remainder of our lives together is a pursuit for unity, to have a sense of that unity. And to add complexity to this problem, we live in a culture that is, I don't need to tell you, increasingly partisan in every which way. It seems that the name of the game now is to find something to be opposed to, to justify arguing and quarreling and sticking to our point and being opposed to other people. Beloved, unity is hard. Because our hearts are divided. We swim in a sea of division and it pollutes our air. And it does, uh, often, even for us in the church, it doesn't seem like a priority. But it is for the Lord Jesus Christ. His church is one. And we heard that in our passage from last week that Paul began this notion of. He said, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is a priority for our Savior, Jesus Christ. We must pursue in humility the unity that is ours in Christ Jesus. Now, in uh, as we look in Philippians, it's we can read between the lines, and sometimes even not between the lines, it seems obvious that there was some sort of disunity or conflict within this church. We don't know exactly what it was, but a doctor doesn't prescribe medicine unless there's some kind of illness. And Paul will talk about this notion of unity over and over and over again. Uh, later in chapter 2, he'll, he'll begin to talk about grumbling and complaining. We'll see that next week. In chapter 4, he calls out two women in particular, Yodia and Syntyche. And he says, I want you to agree together. And last week he was talking about unity. Today he's talking about unity. But remember, this is the book of joy. And Paul's focus is to tell us how to have this joy that is ours in Christ Jesus. And in this passage, he will say, there's joy that has begun in you because of the work that God has done in you in Christ Jesus. And he says, complete my joy. Complete it by pursuing this unity among yourselves. So we'll kind of examine his reasoning, his, his line of thought by seeing it as the joy begun and then the joy pursued and then the joy extended to us in Christ and finally the joy received. 
But he begins by building on a foundation of joy, of the, the joy that is theirs that they've already experienced in Christ Jesus through the work that God has done. He gives three things, I'm sorry, four things that, that have, they, they should already have seen. He says, verse one, first thing, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, if they experience encouragement in being united to Christ, and beloved, that's, that ought to be, it must be our strong encouragement. That is our only hope of being in Christ and united to him, in Christ, in his perfect obedience, in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and even his ascension into the heavenly places. We are with him in God's presence, even as he is with us even now. And as we talked about in chapter one, there's encouragement even in the midst of our suffering when we are suffer for the sake of Christ, knowing that we are being persecuted because we are united to Christ in his sufferings. So first, if there's any encouragement in Christ, second, any comfort from love. And he doesn't say what love, whose love, from whom, to whom. There's a case to be made that this is speaking of Christ's love because it's because of Christ's love that we have any comfort because he loved us enough to come out of obedience to his Father to be like us and to lay down his life for us. No greater love, he said, has a man than to lay down his life for his friends. He says, and you are my friends. So we have comfort from his love. It could have also been referring to Paul's love. As Paul certainly expressed his love. He spoke of how he, in love, was praying for this church how his heart was for them. He even spoke of the deep affections that were theirs. You remember in verse 8 of chapter 1 where he said, I yearn for you with all the affections of Christ Jesus. I have that affection in my gut. It could have been that. But beloved, these, these loves, even of Christ, are only ours because of the love of the Father. It's because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. We just read that from 1 John chapter 4. This is a comfort from the love of God. And thirdly, this is ours because of a participation or a sharing of the spirit, a fellowship, a koinonia is the word. It's because that's the only way that we have any encouragement in Christ Jesus. That's the only way that we are in Christ Jesus. Because according to God's love, he has poured out his spirit upon us. We share in that spirit. The spirit of Jesus Christ dwells in us. We have comfort in being loved. That we can cry out, Abba, Father. And we have encouragement in being united to Christ. And these three things also result in, fourth, affection and sympathy. I think he's talking there about their affection and their sympathy for Paul. Because just as he had expressed his affection for them, they also clearly had an affection for him. They cared about him. They were praying for him. He acknowledged their prayers. He acknowledged their sympathy. They had sent uh, Epaphroditus 
with a gift, trying to find out what was the nature of Paul's situation. They had a care and a concern and affection for them. This was the joy that they had begun to experience. They had a mutual relationship between the apostle and this church. And he says, on the basis of that comfort, on the basis of that joy, which is rooted in the gospel, he says, verse 2, complete my joy. Complete it. He doesn't say, give me joy. I've got something, I can't commend you. He says, complete it. I've begun it. God's begun that joy in me. He's begun it in you. Complete that joy. And beloved, um, the Lord has done some wonderful things here at Zion Presbyterian Church. We are not a perfect church. And on this side of glory, we will never be a perfect church. But the Lord has done some amazing things, and that are, these are things that we ought to be rejoicing about. I hope that you have seen the wonderful things that the Lord has done through this church and is doing through this church. The Lord has worked in you and through you for his glory, and that's worth rejoicing, and yet God is not done. There's still more work to be done. We ought to complete the joy that he has begun by pursuing unity because that's what he says he says how do we complete the joy he says do it by pursuing unity by being complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love being in full accord and of one mind in essence he's saying this is the apostle saying you and I share a love I know you love me and you know I love you Now I want you to stop looking at me and I want you to look at each other. And I want you to love each other that way. That love that you have expressed towards me in Christ Jesus, I want you to love each other that way. I want you to pray for each other that way. I want you to have that mutual care and concern. And I want you to have this as a mindset. When he talks about the same mind, having that same love, he's talking about a mindset of unity, of connectedness. He's not talking about us all being the same. And I'll talk about that in just a second. And he says, but he says, pursue this by tearing down in your hearts those unity breakers that are in our hearts. He gives us three unity breakers. He says, um, verse three, do nothing from rivalry or some translations say selfish ambition. Another way of translating this would be uh, a party spirit or a partisan spirit. Not that we know anything about partisan spirits these days, but apparently those were issues back in Paul's day in the church. And we know it because he wrote to Corinth and he said, brothers, I hear that there are quarrels among you in the church. Like you say, well, I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I follow Peter, I follow Jesus. He says, is Christ divided? What, what's, what's wrong with you? Why are you? We are one church with one Lord. We could have a partisan spirit, not just in our culture, which is prevalent, but we can have it in the church. There's been times where people have gathered behind their favorite celebrity preacher or their, their Christian hero to say, well, I'm, I am of this camp or I'm of this camp. I think we can do it uh, in our, our desire for a particular ministry focus. 
a, a, a manner of doing ministry where we gather together into camps and we say, well, I'm, a, I'm in favor of this versus this. And those guys over there, they don't want to do this. We have the right answer. And it's natural for us to, to do this because God has created us as individuals with our own minds and our own opinions, and that's good. The, the call is not for us to be identical. Unity does not mean uniformity. We have to understand that. We all have our own perspectives and preferences, but those things cannot divide us as a church. Those things we need to be handled in humility to help color the beautiful diversity of God's kingdom as we push and we pull each other, recognizing in humility that none of us has all the answers, as we're building each other up into Christ in humility. We can do nothing out of rivalry. Second uh, unity breaker is conceit. Kids, you may not know that word. Conceit is kind of like arrogance or pride. It is uh, thinking of yourself as better than somebody else. Or um, maybe you don't think yourself is better, but you think your way is better. Your, your opinion is the better way. Uh, the, the Greek word there is a compound word that literally means empty glory. Two words, empty glory. Um, we, we glory in ourselves and we think that we are so great. Our thoughts are so great. Our, our knowledge is so great. But it's an empty glory because we were created for God's glory and we're glorifying ourselves and it never satisfies. Um, the French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who is very influential to our culture today, he said this, he said, I rejoice in myself. If there was a single enlightened government in Europe, they would have set up statues to me. That's conceit. That's conceit. And the problem with conceit is that we glory in ourselves to the expense of our brothers and sisters. There's no room for a differing opinion because we've got the right answer. Just ask us. But we must do nothing out of conceit. And thirdly, the third unity breaker is in verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests. Let us look not to our own interests. And this is very difficult. It's very natural for us to look to our own interests. We must care for ourselves. We know our own interests. We're not sure if anybody else is going to care for our interests. But it can't stop with looking out for our own interests. And it can't even start there. We need to have an outward focus where our own interests take a back seat to that of our brothers and sisters. Because, beloved, if every one of us is focused on our own interests and our own opinions and our own priorities, what kind of unity would we have? Because true unity is not a bunch of individuals showing up in the same room singing songs once a week. That's not unity. 
Unity is connection with one another. It is knowing each other. It is listening to each other. It's caring for one another. It's a mutual concern and connectiveness. And brothers and sisters, I think this is probably where we as a church have the most work to do. But I think that's because that is one of the hardest things of the Christian life. It is very hard for us to live, to have faith in what God has promised with with sincerity of heart. And it's very hard for us to walk by faith, especially when we know that we live in a world that will hate it. But on top of all that, now we have to put our own desires behind us and care for each other as more important than our own desires. It's very difficult. But praise God, the Spirit of God shows us how we can do this. He says, verse 3, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now, um, kids, humility is not a beating yourself up and saying, that you're not worth anything, or that other people are better than you. That's not humility. Humility is understanding who you rightly are before God. We are not gods. We are creatures created by God in God's image. We are not kings that exist exert and enforce our will upon other people. We are servants of the king, submitting to his will and walking according to his pleasure. And beloved, it has been rightly said that pride is the root of every sin. Pride is the root of every sin. Pride was there uh, at the garden in the the very first sin. That was the heart of the devil's temptation. was a heart of uh, selfish ambition and rivalry where he said, you don't, you don't need, you don't need God. If you, if you do, if you make your own choice, you will be like God. You will know what is right and wrong. You'll be on his level. A a self-glorifying approach, a conceit, looking out for your own interests. God doesn't know what you need. And, beloved, what we have to remember is that sin, every sin, is destructive and damaging and threatens every relationship and even our very selves because God is love and he is for us and his law is good, which means that every time that we break God's law, we are bringing harm upon ourselves or someone else. And God's, and sin brings division and destruction. It corrupts and just and threatens to destroy every relationship. Beloved, you have been hurt. You have been hurt by people, other people's pride 
and selfish ambition and conceit. And I promise you that you have hurt other people with your pride and your selfish ambition and your conceit. And sin, this pride, it separates us from God. Three times in Scripture, our God tells us this. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pride, our sin, is destructive. But in that statement, beloved, here's, we hear both our greatest problem, but also our greatest need. That we need humility. If pride is the root of every sin, then what we ought to expect is that humility is actually the gateway, the path, the root of every blessing that is ours in Christ Jesus. Uh, Andrew Murray, uh, long since past theologian and pastor, said this. He said, Without humility, there can be no true dwelling in God's presence or enjoying his favor and the power of the Spirit. Without humility, there is no faith, no love, no joy or strength demonstrated in our lives. Humility is the only soil in which the graces take root. And the lack of humility is the reasonable explanation for every defect and failure in the Christian life. Humility is not so much a blessing or attribute along with others. It is the root of them all, beloved. And our problem is that we can't manufacture true humility. We can't. Pride is at the root and the core of our very soul. But praise God, the good news is that Jesus Christ came to give us this humility. Jesus Christ came, Paul says, to give us and to restore humanity to this true humility by becoming the true man in humility. He humbled himself and came as a humble man to give us that humility, that we might experience it and share in it. He was obedient. He was humble in his obedience before God. He humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant, not looking to his own interests, but to the interests of others, serving. He was, he was humble to come to serve us. His incarnation was perfect humility towards God and towards us. Beloved, your salvation, my salvation, was accomplished because of the humility of Christ. Our salvation is dependent upon his humility. And he lived it. He lived it. And beloved, our salvation is received through humility. It is only through the humility that is given to us by the Spirit of God that we can acknowledge that we are not the creator, not God, but the creature under his authority. That we are sinners in need of a Savior. That there is a truth outside of us that we need to submit ourselves to. That there is a righteousness that we must have, a holiness that we cannot accomplish 
on our own. It's through humility that those things are ours. Yes, we are saved by grace through faith, but that faith comes as the Spirit works the humility in us to receive what has been offered to us. But beloved, and here's Paul's point here, is that in Christ Jesus, salvation must produce that same humility of Christ. There is no place for a self-absorbed, prideful Christian. How can we who were saved by the humility of the very Son of God walk in selfish ambition and rivalry and conceit? How can we who gave himself up and was obedient to death, even death on a shameful cross for us, how can we be so focused only on ourselves? We have his spirit of humility within us. It must transform our hearts that we would walk in humility before one another. Andrew Murray also said that this, this humility, it is the visible stamp that God places on us that we have been delivered from sin. It must characterize us. And beloved, here's the good news, is that in Christ Jesus, this humility is ours. Do you see what it says in verse 5? He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, he has given us his humility. So he says, you have it. It is yours. Now, Now walk in it. Grow in it. Cultivate it. Live it. Bear witness to this humility. It is yours. And how would we do that? He puts Christ up and he says, look at Christ. He's the one in whom is your humility. That is your example. Have that mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. And how did he do it? Not through empty glory, but by emptying himself for the glory of God the Father. We must empty ourselves of our very selves and receive Christ as he's been given to us and walk in his humility and his love and his concern and his affection for one another to the glory of God the Father. That's how we grow in this humility. And beloved, remember, all this is part of Paul's point, his command in verse 2. He says, complete my joy. This is a pursuit of joy. Paul's saying, I have, we, have, we have tasted this joy of unity. Now grow in it. Grow in this joy. Experience it to the full. Finish it out. My joy will be complete. My heart will burst when I see you loving each other, he says. And that's so important for us to understand that our Savior doesn't ask us to give up something good. He's pleading with us to take his great and precious gift and to delight in it. We, he's, 
He's not saying, oh, well, I know this is going to be hard. I know your heart impulse is to care for yourself. And you, I, know, I know it's going to be such a sacrifice. He says, no, receive the joy by letting go and loving one another. Complete my joy. He says, I know your heart impulse is to be conceited. Your heart impulse is to care for yourself and to be rivals. But there's something greater. There's something better. Grab hold of it in Christ Jesus and live with humble servants for one another. It's as if he's saying, if there was any joy in suffering for the sake of Christ, how much more will there be in serving for the sake of Christ? Because that's what our Savior did. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He served us and granted us salvation. And that's, beloved, where we're going to find true joy in the church. That's how we can pursue unity with one another. That's how we will bear witness to the love and humility and sacrifice of Christ before a watching world. And so, beloved, pursue this humility. Repent of your pride. Repent of it. Submit yourself to God, to the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in Christ Jesus. Have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. Humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God. and He will exalt you in Christ and give you great joy. And in humility... Love one another as Christ loved you and gave himself for you. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your love for us in Christ Jesus. And we cannot have this type of humility that you have set forth apart from your grace. And we thank you for your grace, the grace of the Spirit. Would you work this in us that we might experience that joy, give us boldness, to care for others more than ourselves, the courage to trust you, that you will care for us through it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.